This is the Copyright 2.0 Show. My name is Jonathan Bailey, and I am not an attorney, but I am a copyright blogger at Plagiarism Today, which can be found at plagiarismtoday.com. My name is Evan Sherris, and I am an attorney. The opinions I express, however, are intended to be general commentary and are not legal advice. No attorney-client relationship is formed, nor should any such relationship be implied. If you require legal advice, please consult with an attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. And hello, everyone, and welcome to the Copyright 2.0 Show. I love how Google Hangouts does that little tease where it's like, we're going live, we're going live, we're going... Now we're live! Thank you very much for the warning, Google Hangouts. But my name is Jonathan Bailey. I'm from the site Plagiarism Today and on Twitter at username Plagiarism Today. And joining us, a lawyer who is not here to bring you legal advice, but to bring you other wits, witticisms, and wisdom. I am quite sure of that. It is Evan Sherez. Evan Sherez on Twitter. How have you been, man? It's been uh, far too long. Yeah, I've been good. Um, You know, excited to talk copyright again. And uh, as you mentioned, I'm not here to uh, give legal advice, but uh, so so you should you know not, don't rely on anything I say when you're going to court. Um, and sorry, go ahead. And any guarantees of laughter are not actual guarantees; they are yeah, just merely a, it's merely advertising puffery. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah but yeah, we, we have a good show. Yeah. Good show today. Yeah, we got a great lineup today, and largely because we're helped by having so much news to choose from. We have like three weeks of news to go through, so we got a lot to go over. Um, and we're actually, I'm kind of fascinated, and I'm looking forward to getting your feedback on our first story this week. Um, we're talking, we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court and the Google Oracle case. Um, some news there. Also, a major update in the Dish Network lawsuit. Um, Long story short, there we've got a very interesting ruling to discuss, but also a postponement in the case, if you will. And a lot has been happening in the Marvin Gaye Blurred Lines trial. That thing has just been reaching crazy factor 11. We'll be talking about that. Um, now we have more people getting lawsuit over pre-1972 music. Uh, who's on that list? You'll find out in a minute. Uh, CSAC, the lesser known of the performing rights agencies. <laughs> you know, the one everyone forgets to mention whenever well, they're listing them. Huh? Yeah, it's uh, they definitely get lost in, and um, it's because they don't, they're not subject to the same decrees, and which is yeah. what brings us to, to our story. Today, yeah. I love going into bars and going, okay, there's the BMI sticker, there's the ASCAP, where's CSAC? You need CSAC, too. And there's going to be uh, global rights, uh, global yeah, music rights know. is going to have to be there, too. Yep. Uh, there's going to be a fourth sticker to put on your little mirror bars, I'm just telling you. It's coming. It's coming. Then we've got uh, Beastie Boys uh, wanting a little bit more money, or a lot, a bit more money out of their lawsuit. Um, also, the uh, Sam Smith Tom Petty suit will have, not lawsuit, the dispute, my apologies, will have a breakdown of that. And also, an update from Norway where music piracy has apparently gone the way of Ice Giants. And the, just saying. Hey, it, it was part of the, the, the theology, right? Well, let's say uh, gone the way of uh, something that actually existed, so that we can get oh. done, right? The, by uh, uh, by uh, anyone who's trying to, you know, uh, interpret that, but saying Seahawks that we never believe piracy hopes. exists. Um, oh, there we go. Oh, too soon. <laughs> too soon. Too soon. Too soon. I'm gonna get some letters about yeah, that one. Okay. That's for sure. Maybe uh, some takedown requests for this show being too <laughs> offensive. Speaking of which, did you watch the Super Bowl? I did watch the Super Bowl. Uh, I had the pleasure of being invited to uh, um, a Super Bowl party where the food was fantastic. And the best part is I got to take home like a nice like goodie bag of uh, steak and oh, treats. Dude. And uh, it was amazing. Man, and the jealous. game was also obviously you know, one for the ages. I mean, who calls a – who throws the ball at the one-yard line on first down? It's so stupid. You know, but well, it was uh, really funny. It yeah. was really funny. Um, we I didn't watch the game, but I found out about the ending pretty quickly, and I I told my significant others who um may not be the most football literate people on the planet about it, and said you know they were on the one yard line and then they passed, and everyone's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It's like yeah, okay, non football audience gets it too. Got it. 
So yeah, no one seems to think that was a good idea. No one. Yeah. And interesting, have you have you seen the meme based upon the uh, the Northwestern uh, the uh, Northwestern Insurance commercial, the um the, the the really depressing commercial that they aired? Yeah, yeah. The uh, the kid who died. Um, yeah. I saw that. Uh, my uh, my roommate, who's a bit of a Twitter celebrity with uh you know twenty thousand followers, uh, tweeted out. Um, a meme with his, it was it was that little kid, and yeah. it's like I would yeah, have yeah. Sur- I would have survived, except my parents didn't believe in vaccinations. Kind of jumping on both bandwagons okay. at once. That's well, there was a meme going around saying I would have run it in from the one yard line, but yeah. I died. But I died. <laughs> um, oh, and the guy that actually created that, his name is uh, Jared Smith. I know him through um, the, a a friend and B the previous co-host of the show, Patrick O'Keefe. Um, so small universe here, small internet. Um, I am like. Three degrees away from the guy that created that meme, so it's pretty yeah. amusing. Um, I also predicted that the sharks would be like the hit of the so of the Super Bowl. I mean, it totally was. Media impact. I jumped on that right away. I, I you know, put you might Facebook say you jumped the shark. About, <laughs> put a little Facebook <laughs> status like right as it was coming up, like confirming that I was shark number two, and that was a hit amongst my friends. And uh, you were uh, left shark. Is that is that, is that are you shark, confirming yeah. or denying the proof that you were left shark, Evan? I, I am confirming that I was in fact uh, left shark. Oh, well, that's that's too bad because I was right shark. I actually remember the moves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I you know I feel bad for left shark though. No, who can dance in that? Really, that's I like the worst. That is the worst costume in history for dancing. And I'm just saying, I feel bad for left shark. I have no, no animosity, um, but yeah, we got a little. But uh, we do we have a probably lot of great jump co- into the show. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but we do have a lot of great copyright news. Do you want to dive on in and start talking about the Supreme Court and the uh, wonderful photo on this article on Ars Technica, which <sighs> looks like it was taken at a senior citizen's home? Right. <laughs> um, so uh, the Supreme Court asks the Department of Justice, which is the Obama administration, to weigh in on the Google Oracle API. Copyright lawsuit, which uh, on appeal, uh, the uh, the decision was reversed, and basically the, the appeals court said that these APIs or the, a certain part of these APIs are in fact copyrightable. So you may be asking, what is an API? Well, that's a really good question <laughs> because a lot of people have a difficult time explaining what an API is, uh, and without even getting into the technical details of what they alleged was copyrightable inside the API. So when they have to explain this to the Supreme Court, I'm excited for oral arguments. And I think I've said that to you before because, you know, it's a technical uh, topic. So an API is something that lets two different programs that may be written in different code to communicate with each other. So when your phone uh, is, uh, you know, has downloaded an app that is trying to connect to, let's say, your TV but your TV uh, was, you know, let's say made three years ago, and this is written in a new language, but you still want to get your photos on your TV, APIs are how these two things communicate with each other. Um, And so, basically, Java, made by uh, Oracle, has really dominated the market for APIs so that, you know, you really... um, They're really the go-to people when it comes to how... APIs are uh, written. Mm-hmm. And so Google, when they were basically writing their own APIs, used a lot of the language that these Oracle APIs had written. And so even down to the headings, which um, are not necess- necessary, um, according to, uh, to, to Oracle, but Google says that, hey, the way you wrote these is the way it has to work. There's no other way that we can do this because it's utilitarian, which is a big exception in copyright, which is that if something needs to be uh, there for a utilitarian purpose, like, for example, if a chair has two arms, you can't claim to have a copyright on a chair with two arms. That's where I got to put my hands. A good example in writing would be actually a lot of legal writing falls underneath this. If there's only one way to testify or declare something, that method of declaring it is not going to be copyrighted. You cannot sue the lawyer that comes behind you and uses that verbiage. Right, although a lot of copyright trolls do try to uh, sue lawsuits. (laughs) 
yeah. sue, sue law firms on their uh, on on the boilerplate contract language. But yeah, that's a good example of it. it certain things, if they must be uh, there in order for something to uh, operate, cannot generally be copyrighted. And so. The way these APIs function is allegedly utilitarian, according to Google, which is trying to say that, you know, hey, we could uh, we could really use this if we want to, because you can't protect this. Otherwise, the whole internet, as we know it, you know, uh, might fall apart. Um, you know, and so um, what's happened here is that certiorari has been granted, which means that it's going to go before the Supreme Court. And uh, I thought cert. I thought cert had not been granted yet. Um, I thought it had not been granted yet. That they were debating whether or not to grant cert. Oh, on this. I, I thought cert was granted, but I. Um, that's just what my notes say here. I could be wrong. Um, I'll defer to you on that. <laughs> how, how comfortable are, are you on that? Uh, on that, like, we can look it up really quickly. Yeah, we can look it up really fast. But anyway, I'll look it up. you keep talking. <laughs> I'll keep talking. So what they've done is basically uh, ask for an amicus brief, which is um, a legal position on the importance of the case and who should win, uh, depending on which part it's at. If it's at the step where they haven't granted certiorari, you're generally trying to you know, convince the Supreme Court that this is an extremely important case that you should hear. If it is already at the Supreme Court, you're trying to tell the Supreme Court who should win. But uh, an amicus brief is basically from someone who's not interested in the case. It's a uh, third party. And often the Supreme Court wants the government's point of view, so they ask the uh, – they issue a request. And uh, it gets into this really funny business of okay. like how much – Real fast. Oh, uh, cert has not been granted. Cert yet. has not been granted. Okay, John won at least zero. At least not as of December 23rd, and I don't think you're going to get the Supreme Court to do much between then and now. Yeah, so uh, – <laughs> So they've asked for the government to <coughs> on the importance of, of, of deciding this case. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the government usually has about 60 days to answer and uh, give them their opinion, although I don't think there's really a hard due date. You know, I actually had to research this for a partner once, which was the, you know, like, what happens if the government misses a deadline, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. So, uh, so I guess we'll figure out our, our, our being names. a government contractor and missing a deadline. That's different, though. Yeah, that's very so, different. That's just, so we're gonna we're gonna see if um, Google's copying of the names, uh, declarations, and header lines of Java's APIs uh, in their Android platforms is in fact copyright uh, infringement. Um, and one of the reasons I, I, I knew, I, I thought, I was pretty sure that they hadn't granted cert was because I've actually had a debate recently. Um, with several of my friends and fellow copyright legal eagle types about whether or not the Supreme Court will grant cert. I seem to think there's a decent chance they will, and the fact they're writing the DOJ seems to think they're at least taking a strong interest in the case. Yeah, I think but, this is a, an important case that'll get that'll get uh, granted. This is one of those areas where like, I'm always a little hesitant to talk about because it kind of gets into that software uh, kind of. science degree stuff. Um, well, I mean, you could talk about <laughs> copyright, you know, to a certain extent on the on the fringes of uh, of this case and explain the basics of, you know, a utilitarian function. Yeah. But then when it really gets into the nitty gritty of it, you know, I need a computer scientist here with me. Well, you know, we, we definitely could use one on this show, at least part time. And it's, it's one of the more frustrating elements of this is that, you know, I consider myself pretty tech savvy. I find a lot of this confusing, <laughs> you know. I think that's why they asked the DOJ. They're like, do we really have to take this? We don't want to, I mean, you know. It's too complicated. You know, and then, you know if the DOJ snaps back saying, nah, it's not important. The Supreme Court's going to be like, ah, screw this, we out. <laughs> yep. Because, I mean, seriously, go back and read this article on Ars Technica, look at the photo. That's the group of people that'd be deciding it. Yeah. I mean, I think, it, I think when uh, this case is uh, decided or when oral arguments are heard, we should have a guest um, uh, yeah, some... CS guy on, <clears throat> well, you on, know, on the show. I, and I know who I nominate. I nominate the um, uh, Chris Matthew. If you are listening to this, the first co-host and actually the founder of the Copyright 2.0 show and a rabid software developer has written many applications. He would be a great person to talk to about this. So, Chris Matthew, you're on notice. When the, If this gets certain, we have to talk about oral arguments. You are coming on this show even if I have to kidnap you, I will go to Phoenix and kidnap you. 
if needed. That is a threat. Not not a, not a threat in the legal sense of the word, but in in the uh, the fun, playful meaning of the word. Right. <laughs> if there is one. Well, okay. So let's, let's, think, let's talk about sling. Gears. Yes. Let's talk about Sling. Uh, sling and Hopper and... How many more uh, advertising words can we squeeze into this, you think, real fast? Um, yeah, Dish Network has been having a long-running battle with Fox and other television networks, too, but some of those seem to have been settled over various features it offers, uh, including Auto Hop, which is a feature which lets you automatically skip commercials in some TV shows. Apparently it doesn't work in all, but only like the major primetime ones, you know, the ones they invested the energy into creating the pattern for, I suppose. Um, I tried to skip the commercials in an infomercial once. That didn't work out so good. Um, just got 30 minutes of static. But, um, and also Sling, which is a service that they provide, which lets you take the content on your DVR and right. sling it <laughs> to various other devices, including computers and phones and whatever else you may have you. Uh, Fox has been going at them over this. Uh, one of the issues has been a copyright issue, saying that Autopop is a copyright infringement, and that Sling is Echoes of Aereo, so to speak, and is also a copyright infringement itself. It seems, however, the judge largely disagreed. And I want to point this out. The judge's name is Dolly M.G., uh, uh, interesting. I just can't get that out of my head. Dolly M.G. I mean, I'm sure she is a very capable judge and a wonderful human being, but that is a rather strange name for a judge, you have to admit. Uh, you know what? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna jump on that one, because... You're just in case you ever have to be the... You know, uh, that's just <laughs> bad, uh... That's bad form. Um, it is, it is. I all I know is that she needs to name her daughter O. So that they can be OMG, and then that would be well, perfect. No. Um, no, she needs to marry someone with the last name Willikers, and then hyphenate the last name, so it would be Dolly G. Willikers. Uh, this is a facepalm for those listening in the audio <laughs> part only. That, that's, that's what the silence is. Uh, it is, it is a, <laughs> a sincere facepalm. So, um, <coughs> we should move on from that. Quickly. <laughs> so, uh, I think the more interesting part of um, of this settlement or, or of this lawsuit is is um, it just gives us a really good example. If you look at some of the other uh, lawsuits that were filed in this case, of how to settle a lawsuit like an adult, so that you know you don't end up in the legal fee situations that we're going to cover. In the Beastie Boys monster um, situation, because foreshadow, the article, foreshadow. Uh, you know, ABS, ABC, and CBS settled their litigation last year, uh, agreeing to modify their ad, the ad skipping feature so that it won't be available for three days after the show run on ABC and for seven days on CBS. So here we are if, with a reasonable compromise on what is essentially like a, ba- a bad service. From the uh, content producer's standpoint, because if everyone is always able to skip ads, then their revenue source is gone, and Dish knows that. But then again, you know, if it's you know seven weeks later, and I want to watch a show, you know, first of all, your commercials may not even be relevant anymore. So why should I have to watch them? Yeah, and there should be some ability to do that. So here we come for like a uh, with a good compromise that lets. Dish, uh, you know, advertised this new technology, which I'm sure it had invested a lot in and patented into its clients uh, to gain, you know, some more revenue. And it also lets the content producers guarantee certain numbers to their uh, to their advertisers. And so that's how you should properly settle one of these instead of, you know, doing what essentially has happened here, um, which is that uh, this is, you know, obviously probably taking a whole bunch of legal fees to get to, which is that it is not a copyright violation because there's a there's a fundamental difference between what the uh, the Sling service does. So this is this we're talking about the Sling, not the Ad Skipper. Now, uh, what the Sling service does and what Aereo did, um, you know, basically uh, the Dish DVR automatically um, sent you kind of slung as you mentioned <laughs> earlier. Hey, I didn't yeah. name it. I'm just throwing that out. Uh, 
just like a kind of Aereo went from Aereo servers to you know a, any other uh, uh, media device, uh, handheld device by the customers, this basically allowed the customers to sling their um, signal coming into their TVs, which they have the right to do, to a second product, which you know is akin to almost that time shifting that uh, we decided was fair use uh, in the 80s, which was you're able to kind of, if you have the right yourself to uh, watch the television, you can kind of, you know, figure out where and when you want to watch it. And, you know, it was interesting. When aerial ruling was handed down, there was a lot of chicken littles out there. Like, the sky is falling. No digital service will ever be able to operate in this field again. There will be no chance to ever have innovation and technology, and then, like, not even a few months later, we had this key ruling against Sling and Hop, Auto Hop, that seems to, you know, make some sharp distinctions between Aereo and this. It seems like the Aereo ruling is going to wind up, there was a Supreme Court ruling having a very isolated impact on copyright, at least. Well, I mean, this, they, they were essentially ruled that there was no copyright violation. Yeah. You know, so, you know, if you're, if you're a subscriber, if you're already subscribing you know, to that authorized, uh, to the content and you're receiving it in an authorized fashion on your own box, you, the subsequent transfer of the programming, you know, by Dish Anywhere takes place after they've, they, the, the subscriber has validly received it. So, uh, you know, uh, Aereo transmitted its program to subscribers directly without a license to do so while yeah. these people already have that right. That exactly. And that's the key difference. And I think from a copyright standpoint, that pretty much summarizes it nicely. Now, the judge did seem to agree that there were certain potential contract issues here, kind of separate from the copyright ones, that a deal between Fox and Dish may or may not have been violated over the course of this. And also, they targeted a little bit the primetime anytime, which apparently lets you like record the entire primetime programming for a network and view it. And there was a deal between them where Dish could not offer Fox television as video on demand. Yeah, and that pushes those, but that pushes that a little far. <clears throat> the judge seemed to agree with that. But what else is interesting is, after the ruling was made, but before it was unsealed, the two sides asked for a a hiatus, if you will, on the litigation, saying that they think they can reach a settlement now, and they're going to try and work it out in a void. They, they, even though the trial was not scheduled until October, like, yeah, that's that's too soon. Let's just pu- push it back past that. Let's take that off the calendar. Um, and so they seem to think that they can reach a settlement now, but as you said, everyone else did it last year. Well, um, we still have NBC's litigation. That's true. So, okay. uh, it was CBS, ABC, and uh, who else was the other one? Fox. Fox. Right. Okay. So, so CBS and ABC have settled. Yeah, so uh, at least they didn't do as badly as, I guess, NBC has done uh, in terms yeah. of this uh, negotiation and settlement. But anyways, um, I think, uh, I think that, that, that really brings us uh, to the point of the importance of the threat of litigation. So at one at one you know side I talk about the importance of like kind of getting things done as adult, but you know on the other side you kind of need this threat and maybe this gray copyright area to bring these two sides to the table and be like, hey, this is gonna you know benefit nobody if you both just you know lock horns for a while on this kind of gray issue, come to an agreement about what you can do with you know this new technology and in order to compensate content producers for. Uh, for potentially lost advertising revenue. So, yeah. you know, uh, this is a good way to look at both sides of the coin of, you know, is copyright litigation the way to go? You know, should it be completely ignored? You know, well, this kind of brings you right to the middle of the gray area, which is that it's kind of needed for people to come together. Uh, and you could see that um, the general strategy of getting to an agreement first is going to cost you way less. Oh, a very wise attorney once told me that 95% of litigation is negotiation. At the end of the day, yeah, um, that's really what it's about. It, a lot of a lot of times, litigation is nothing more than one side trying to gain an advantage in negotiation. That's one hundred percent. I think that's 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 true. You you know file certain statements and motions to change your bargaining position, and you, know, you get a few favorable rulings from the judge. You know exactly. things start looking more your way. You've got that leverage with which to get better terms in negotiation. So. So, uh, speaking well, of uh, lawsuits and negotiations, let's, let's move on, on to the next story here. Yeah. Uh, 
the next uh, sad guy in the Marvin Gaye and Robin Thicke. This is where if we had like really planned out uh, audio, you know, here's, this is where, you know, that, that, uh, well, that apparently first few it'd be seconds would come to in. play the two songs back to back for the purpose of this comparison. Uh, That's I don't what know what the that judge says. It's, it's very unique. Well, I mean, the judge, the judge is, is saying that for, for much different reasons. Yeah, I know. Prejudiced jury, if there's no copyright on the song recording. Anyways, that's kind of step step six and seven. Um, so, so, for those of you who haven't been following, uh, Marvin Gaye's uh, family has sought uh, money from uh, the Blurred Lines people. Uh, it's Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams. Uh, exactly. And so, um, but with just two weeks to go before a scheduled trial... A uh, number of pretrial rulings have resulted in um, Marvin Gaye's family wanting to uh, file an interlocutory appeal, which basically is an appeal before trial on an issue that's been decided. And for the uh, record, the interlocutory inter- interlocutory is one of my favorite legal words. Good there's one. no way to roll that off the tongue. It's just a, a great one. <laughs> it's impossible to say. You want to sound really smart. Yes, if you want to sound really smart, it is basically a $10 word for the concept of an appeal before a verdict has been, a final verdict has been issued, basically. Right, so to briefly recap, uh, Williams and Thicke actually sued first, uh, which is kind of counterintuitive to most people because it's they, they wrote the second song, right? So you would think that they were the ones being sued. This is actually a pretty common thing when you know you're about to be sued. Uh, it's a pretty astute legal move to sue first for something called a declaratory judgment, which is like asking to a judge to tell you whether you're infringing or not. And uh, the reasons to do this is generally you want to either get to a particular court because you think that court will rule, uh, it will tend to rule uh, in your favor. Uh, or if you, uh, you know, let's say, are, know that the other team has got a really good local legal team based in Nashville, but you're in California and you don't want to go to Nashville, so you file in California. Uh, and so that's what happened here. Um, so we have the two songs, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a layperson, when they would think that if we're going to figure out whether these two songs are similar or not, would be like, okay, we're going to listen to the sound recordings, right? We're going we're gonna to put one... <laughs> Uh, and then we're going to put the other, and then the jury is going to decide. Well, no. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Um, basically, there's some issue about um, the protections afforded to sound recordings. Uh, because this was a pre-72, and as we've mentioned before, there's really no blanket federal protection for uh, uh, sound recordings pre-72 and their public performance rights. And so um, the jury, according to the judge won't be able to uh, hear the actual recording of Marvin Gaye's... Uh, what is it? Let's get it on, or am I... Am I um, got it? to give it up. Got to give it up. Uh, they seem to be asking the same thing, though, those two songs. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's this question of, like, how do you explain to a jury what a song sounds like without playing the song? And so they've been going back and forth, where it's like, well, you can't play the actual song, but you could play it on a piano so that they can hear the notes, but then it's the piano against the song, so is that the right way to do it? Um, and or do you so, allow an edited version of the song, which is what the latest ruling was? Okay, yeah, you're going to be like, digitally remove the vocals and other elements from the right, song. because they are the, uh, are the vocals like, relevant or are they protected? And so um, it's one of these really funny stories, and you know, they, the Marvin Gaye people who... Uh, claim that there will be devastating consequences in the copyright yeah. world. I, Who doesn't I, say this? Uh, if 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 you know they are not every ruling to play has the devastating song. consequences. Evan, haven't you learned that? It's yeah, devastating for someone at least. Yeah, you know a lot of uh, a lot of people really uh, will will try to object to evidence being introduced. You know, like Your Honor, that's prejudicial to my client. And you know, the general rule with evidence is that if the probative value is you know significantly outweighed by the prejudice to the client. You know, it can be not allowed, which means, like, you know, um, if something's not really that relevant to the case and it comes out that the defendant is a, you know, a child molester or something like that, and that's the kind of thing that you don't let in because it's not really relevant. But, uh, you know, one of those things is like, Your Honor, this this is really prejudicial because we're going to lose the case if you let it in. It's like, no, sorry, that doesn't count. You know, that's yeah. admissible. Um, so, uh, 
Well, so yeah, that's another thing that they always tend to The do. main reason the, the sound recording is not allowed, in my understanding, for Marvin Gaye is that they did not register the sound recording with the U.S. Copyright Office, which in the United States is required for jurisdiction over the sound recording. That's a jurisdictional issue as much as anything. And the result of that is the court can't and will not be able to hear anything about the copyright infringement claim against the sound recording. And that's where you're getting this prejudicial that this is not. And a lot of it apparently is only in the sound recording. A lot of the issues and a lot of the similarities are not found in the composition, including the, the way Marvin Gaye sings the song. A lot of the backup vocals, etc., are not written in the composition. So that produces a very serious problem. And what the Gaye estate is trying to say is that, well... Basically, the sound recording is an extension of the composition, and therefore it should be protected through the registration and the things we have done for that. The protection for the sound recording should follow naturally. But um, Williams and Thicke are going, nuh-uh, or whatever the legal term for that is, um, and saying, you know, the law is what it is. It may not, you know, be perfect, but it's also not unfair. It's You have the same rights as everyone else in this position. Type thing. Right. So... It's a bizarre case, and it centers largely around, as you mentioned, the pre-1972 sound recordings and this idea that prior to then, sound recordings were protected under state copyright, which sounds right. basically state misappropriation. Uh, but. And, uh, and, and in this case, you, you correctly were, you were bringing up the registrations. Um, you know, that was required. You needed publication and registration uh, for copyright uh, rights uh, in your creative works. Hybrid areas where, uh, you know, before the '76 Act, which had a later date of 1978 for certain works, um, based which are made based off of um, works done before '78. You know, it's uh, it's it's definitely a complex reason why the the evidentiary ruling ended up how it is. But you know, at the end of the day, we have to end up with this uh, ruling on whether a uh, a similar version can be shown to. Yeah. So that's that's what this this the uh, the main current crisis is. And you know, whatever so, happened to the days in which musicians would just buy off people that accuse them of plagiarism? Oh wait, we're getting to that. Um, oh wait, never mind. I'm I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, but you know, and the issue of pre-1972 music actually comes up again in this next story, though, with uh, Sony and Google. So it seems like a natural extension. Uh, Sony, Google, Apple, and others, including Groove Shark, because you know Groove Shark just needed a little more litigation against it. <laughs> you know what Groove Shark needs? Another lawsuit. Yes, it needs another one. But anyways, they're being sued over their use of pre-1972 sound recordings in various radio-style apps. And long story short, there is. They all run various radio services of various or music streaming services of different stripes. Um, and Apple's case for those playing along that would be Beats that they bought out. <laughs> right. Um, this was the uh, floodgates that I guess uh, Sirius was warning. You should have seen coming. Yep. Um, although an update at the end of the article did mention that uh, only the lawsuit against Sony actually is still. Uh, still up there because uh, a lot of the other um, companies were able to show that they did in fact license uh, the pre-1972 works uh, with catalog-wide licenses at the end of the article, which is uh, good to hear, you know. Um, yeah. Because which makes me ask the difficult question, what the hell, Sony? <laughs> yeah, well, why are they the only one? Um, why are you the only one sticking around? Well, you, you, when we were talking about the global music rights uh, lawsuit, a lot of these uh, companies will buy these catalogs and they don't even know what's in them. They just, they, they, you know, they, they, they assume that they have all of these, that these, that these catalogs cover all of the music that they're going to play, but even Google doesn't know what they have the license to, what they have the licenses for, uh, you know. And and then they mention that in their GMR lawsuit. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so we're we're hit with this pre seventy two music lawsuit. You know, this happened because uh, when Congress amended the copyright laws in the nineteen seventies to cover sound recordings, protected only those authored after February fifteenth, nineteen seventy two, under federal law. Congress. And, 
That's punting right. on issues since at least the 70s. Um. <laughs> well, uh, you know, since then, a variety of music, uh, you know, users, including TV broadcasters, radio, uh, DJs, bars, restaurants, you know, they have performed pre-1972 sound recordings without really much legal trouble because it's been in this gray area. Uh, and we had this uh, suit settle between Sirius, not settle, but it was, it was ruled on between Sirius and the, uh, the Turtles that, you know, there is in fact a, uh, some state sound yeah. recording, uh, public performance rights for sound recordings uh, in a few states. And so uh, you, you know, only need someone one. else trying to jump on that bandwagon. You only need one. Because most of these things operate nationally, so if just one state rules, there's a performance rights there. Um, yeah, the floodgates do open, and in this case, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Hot Tuna, and the New Riders of the Purple Sage. Those sound like band names I made up. Yeah, you know, I did not make those up. Flying Burrito, I can't even say the name. <laughs> flying Burrito, the Flying Burrito Brothers. Uh, uh, actually, were mentioned in the uh, Eagles documentary, the three out, which was fabulous, by the way. Uh, the Eagles documentary about the band, and they were talking about the formation of the band. They're like, "Yeah, you know, we really wanted this guy. He was he was playing with the Flying Burrito Brothers at the time, so he wasn't really interested in us, the Eagles." And I was just like, "Damn, dude, you chose the wrong horse." <laughs> you know? Uh, oh well. Oh, oh well, indeed. Um, you know. I bet he still kicks himself a little bit every morning when he wakes up. Dude, I could have been in the Eagles. But I, it still worked out for me. Got to be a litigant in this lawsuit. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how this has been shaking out, though. And as you mentioned, the floodgates at least partially opened on this. But I think they went for a home run here, and it sounds like they kind of it was a swing and a miss for most of these guys, at least. We'll see if Sony eventually gets dropped. But it's fascinating because you know there are thousands of other potential defendants of this. Right. This doesn't, Everyone, end, this doesn't end with Apple. Yeah, this could be major bad news and uh, and then maybe, you know, a few more paydays for the pre-72 musicians, which, and, like, these days are the only ones who can make money anyways, touring. Um, so, yeah... It's definitely uh, spurred, as the article mentions, furious new lobbying attempts to get Congress to address pre-72 music. Um, Good luck with that. But yeah, in the meantime, these, uh, these, these, these lawsuits are still on their very, oh, very uh, early let stages. You, let me ask you the question, putting Evan Shares on the spot here. What do you think should be done with pre-1972 music? Oh, man. You know, <laughs> no, no pressure or anything. Just I expect I, the perfect answer in the next two minutes. I personally think that you know, that we should have a compulsory license system for these pre seventy two music. Okay, uh, it's just because it's been done for such a long time. I I don't I personally, as a listener, you know, don't want uh, them taking taken off the air. You know, I I do love me my '60s music. So, as from a purely selfish point of view, if there could be some sort of compulsory compulsory license system in which um, various uh, streaming and uh, public performance software can pay a uh, preset amount to have these songs played, I'd really uh, I'd appreciate that personally. Yeah, but I don't want them going away because I I really appreciate them. Do you think they should bring him on any federal protection? I, mean, I guess I would have to in order to install a um, compulsory yeah, license yeah, system. Definitely yeah, and but of course that creates another problem because what we mentioned with the Blurred Lines lawsuit and this idea of copyright registration, um, none of these works were registered. Why would they be? There was no point in registering them with the federal copyright, the U.S. Copyright Office. So, yeah, that produces an issue. Now you got two classes of work when it comes to registration, and this is the type of thorny stuff, but yeah. I agree with you that something should be done here, but I think uh, along with this, maybe we should take the time to reevaluate the very bizarre copyright registration rules we have in this country. Very bizarre. Agreed. Very, hey, very, very bizarre. Also, if we're, if we're going with what I want, let's make a copyright registration a prerequisite for uh, creativity so that everyone needs to use my legal services. Oh, there you go. <laughs> like a license. So you could literally get a poetic license. Yeah, I guess you could. <laughs> 
Yeah, it'd be um, like a <laughs> so you'd be literally getting a creative license. <laughs> All um, right, CSAC. CSAC. Tell me uh, about it. I want to hear about uh, this. They, CSAC wants uh, final approval on a $58.5 million settlement with uh, TV stations. Not often you hear those words, especially when the settlement's going against them. Right. So, um, they're a performance rights organization that uh, dealt with t- local TV stations and their ability to uh, syndicate shows. And so, as you know, you know most quality television shows have great soundtracks. And whether it's a song for a few seconds or, you know, for a whole minute, you basically have these television shows playing music and, and that needs to be licensed. You need a syndication license. Um, and so what CSAC had been doing, uh, which is a great example of why ASCAP and BMI are under uh, antitrust uh, consent agreements, yeah. is that they weren't making individual s- uh, songs available for licensing. So if you had 30 songs in your you know, season of friends that you wanted to syndicate and you went to CSAC and you were like, hey, I want to you know, do this, uh, CSAC's like, oh, great, uh, you have to buy our whole catalog or nothing at all. It's kind of like the cable companies and their bundles. Um, Only and, worse, somehow. And so it, it, you know, it essentially was a minor form of monopoly you know, and because they couldn't go anywhere else because of the uh, they were in charge of these performance uh, rights, and so probably the songs that are on Friends are not the right ones. These are probably more minor and lesser known songs if it's CSAC handling them. Um, so yeah, uh, they got sued, uh, and uh, basically uh, after five years of litigations, they have reached a deal, and there's going to be uh, fifty nine million dollars in damages paid out to. Uh, Oh, inclu- uh, like this, including $16 million in attorney's fees and expenses. Um, of course. Which will go to affiliates of ABC, CBS, and NBC. And this is obviously a move, though, to avoid getting hit with their own antitrust and their own consent decree. Because this also requires them to offer alternative licenses and to offer the ability to work directly with the artists. To basically not lock in the artists. They can only be licensed through CSAC. Um, so, yeah, this is obviously an attempt to avoid what happened to BMI and ASCAP, which is kind of the whole benefit of CSAC and now Global Music Rights to a degree is that, hey, we don't have these consent decrees. We can charge more. We can t- give you more. Right. It's and kind of the whole, it, whole At benefit. the same time, it's supposed to result in more competition to bring down the prices. So yeah. Uh, yeah, that, hasn't, that hasn't come yet. But real fast, speaking of music and TV shows, have you listened to, have you watched the TV show Stalker? I'm not much of a TV person, but I've caught a few episodes of that, and they play, like, really, like, they take music, like, you know, that sounds kind of stalkery, and do these very slow, creepy covers of them. It's really, really cool. Um, so it's worth checking out for the music alone, I think. Uh, they usually play them at the end, if you uh, are curious about that. Uh, I just actually got into Sherlock. I just watched the first oh episode last night. How's that? Amazing. First yeah, episode yeah. really grips you. Um, so I, that, that's my recommendation to you. The other one, Stomper, is the content? Is it good? Is it a good show? What do you think? It's, it's all right. It's not my, t- not my cup of tea. It's a police procedural at the end of the day to me. But it's about stalkers. I mean, it, I can to me, all police procedurals are about the same, including CSI New Orleans, which really is very interesting with its handling of my city. Um <laughs> But say love you. Yeah. So as part uh, of the deal, uh, in in order to avoid this, probably uh, what decree uh, they've essentially agreed that for the next twenty years, it will be obligated to offer alternatives to its blanket licenses, mm-hmm. barred from preventing affiliated composers and publishers from entering into direct licenses with local stations, and prevented from threatening local stations with copyright infringement lawsuits during license negotiations. So they. Uh, they got hit with the uh, they they got hit with they got hit with something here. You know, this is yeah. not maybe a consent decree, but it's close. Yeah, and um, well, the main thing they avoid is the rate court system, which is what I think. Which what ASCAP and BMI, if you go to license from them, and you don't like the terms they offer, basically they have to license you to work while you hash it out, and then if you just can't work out the terms, it goes to an actual specialized rate court with actual specialized judges and stuff to actually settle what your rate should be with them. So, that it, it, ASCAP and BMI still have it worse, but yeah, only marginally so. 
Right. So speaking of having it bad, the Beastie Boys, Beastie Boys. Uh, oh, God. and their $1.7 million uh, copyright win wasn't really a win, we find out, because they have a $2.4 million legal bill. And, uh, you know, here I am. <laughs> Frozen dinners. If, you, if you're watching the video, you are missing Evan actually foaming at the mouth a little yeah. bit about this. Well, um, yeah, so the video is used for five weeks, which can show you, like, why we need a small claims court. Maybe this wasn't the purpose, you know, or the small claims court, but it just goes to show how fast, you know, legal fees get out of control. Five weeks of, 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 the, of, their, of their songs being used. Um by Monster and uh, the Beastie Boys have basically alleged that litigation tactics and non uh, and non good faith negotiations or negotiations in bad faith is what I should have said basically resulted in the skyrocketed legal fees. That is called that. Yeah, uh, that's um, a non good negotiation. <laughs> non good no. faith. So non good faith negotiation. Yes. Uh, not, not not quite as as barbaric as non good, but it's up there. Um. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, uh, copyright lawsuits give a pretty uh, large leeway when it comes to judges and, and their ability to handle legal fees. So I don't think they have no shot. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the Beastie Boys are alleging that they offered to negotiate a deal post-trial to curb, you know, additional litigation costs in terms of, like, you know, this part itself in terms of asking for more, more money in the legal fees. But Monster didn't respond to the offer. Um and as a result, they uh, they want to be awarded 2.38 million in legal fees, including 900,000 spent prior to trial and 1.28 million during trial, and 200,000 post cost trial through December. Now, so the Copyright Act does guarantee you the right, well, it does at least offer the possibility that the judge can award attorney's fees, reasonable attorney's fees. Right, and it's uh, it's it's a pretty wide open area of the yeah. law. And it's kind of one of those deals where the winning side will go, well, our legal fees are, shoot, this this number way over here. And the other side goes, but your legal fees should be something way the heck over here. And then the judge goes, okay, it's actually somewhere about here. Well, that's and, step two, right? First, he has to decide if the conduct of the parties yeah. it, it will, you know, necess- necessitates the uh, awarding of attorney's fees. And then once that's been done, they have to submit their attorney's fees. Yeah. And then those attorney's fees are evaluated by your attorneys to cost you more money. And they'll say that these are unreasonable attorney's fees. You actually only should have charged this, you know, which is parting yeah, yeah. through billable hours, which is such a nightmare. Um, and, uh, and, and that's step two is to figure out what the actual number is. Yeah, and that's the mess of this all really, is that at the end of the day, you have the judge deciding what the attorney should be paid. <laughs> And it's kind of it's based upon you know like you said what evidence they can bring what both sides believe is fair and how, what the judge had for breakfast that morning could play a role. <laughs> I mean it's it really could be almost anything, but you know it it, it does show I think I, I people the two point four million strikes me as high, but not like well that's impossible that is yeah. impossible. I. Uh... I really don't know, but, uh, you know, I don't really put many figures outside of what is reasonably possible as, as yeah. an attorney. You know, you, sometimes you get uh, a pretty simple issue and then, you know, 18 hours later, what seems like a simple ac- answer actually really needed all that research because not only are you doing all the research for all the documents that you're going to be putting in front of a judge, but you have to kind of rule out seven other things. And mm-hmm. so... What you see on paper doesn't actually reflect what the, the the work that a reasonable and competent and professional attorney has to do. Yeah, um, I agree. And uh, so, you yeah. also have the issue of we don't know like the details of the strategies both sides use. That one side or the other tried, like you said, like they accused Monster of engaging in delaying tactics and sort of tactics designed to bury them in paperwork. That's going on. The legal bills skyrocket even at the time of the trial. Doesn't you know what I mean? Expand much. Right. If it doesn't take that long time wise to get through it, it could be a very dense period of work because they had to respond to 80,000 different motions and fi- other filings. Yeah, uh, it, it, I don't think the number is, is that unreasonable. I'd also like to quickly um, say hello to my friend Aaron, who is uh, oh. the CEO of uh, Project Candy Box, who's listening to the show right now and uh, blowing up my phone here. Um, 
he uh, he has a really cool service. Basically, uh, he it's a subscription based service where they'll send you candy from different parts of the world that you don't you don't know what you're gonna get, but you get a new box every month. And so uh, he's he's been doing really well up in Canada with that. And so he's listening to the show right now. Oh well, glad to have you here. Um, do you, uh, what's the domain of it? Do you know? Uh, uh I can Google it really quickly. Uh, the domain name is www.projectcandybox.com. Projectcandybox.com. Okay, I was trying to find it real fast so I could throw the plug out too. Candybox.com. I am going to uh, see about subscribing to that. That sounds oopsie. Well, I guess it'd, it'd help if it was not if I type projectcandybox.com and not projectcandy.box. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think I don't think you want to go to dot boxes. That might be a yeah, specialized domain. <laughs> don't that, that nothing good can come out of that TLD. Of course, it probably now is one thanks to ICANN. But um, so a big controversy happened last week involving Sam Smith. He is a guy I was unaware of before this week. Apparently, he's a UK soul singer, is how he's described, mm-hmm. and the American musician Tom Petty. Um. Apparently, the um, chorus between Sam Smith's Stay With Me and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' 1989 song, I Won't Back Down, bear what some consider to be an uncanny resemblance. So, we've actually, here at the Copyright 2.0 show, uh, set up uh, a potential audio playing of these two songs. All right, go for it. Uh, So, let's see if this works out. I'm going to remove the headphones here so you all can hear the, uh, the, the music coming from my computer. First one that you're about to hear is I uh, won't back down this is the chorus so listen carefully so that is Tom Petty's I won't back down now here is Sam Smith's Stay with me. Guess it's true, I'm not good at a one it's get to the chorus quickly. Oh, aren't you staying with me? Cause you're So it's uncanny. Um, I don't know. What did you think? Were you able to hear it? I don't know. Maybe that wasn't like the perfect. I was able to hear, I it, able and to hear it, and I listened to it before, actually. There's, There's a, a lot of great mashup videos, 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 too, of it. If, uh, you want to check, those, check out. those out. And yeah, and yeah it's, it's very, very uncanny. uncanny. But, um, but um, it appears that Tom Petty is not really accusing Sam Smith of, you know, theft or, you know, being a plagiarist or anything like that. He's saying that it was an accident. And he understands these things happen. And they basically came together and worked out a deal where Tom Petty is now added as a write, gets a, basically a writing credit on the song and gets some royalties for it. Though it's unclear if he's getting back royalties or just future royalties. That The deal's not disclosed. So it seems to be a very amicable resolution. Um, but a lot of people are saying that the, um, the similarities are purely coincidence or just the nature of music. And others are going, oh my god, Sam Smith, how could you dare rip off the great Tom Petty? I am rabble, rabble mad. So there's only two camps on this, and I kind of fall somewhere in between, personally. uh, They came to an agreement. They're both credited with co-writers. I promise you he's getting back money. Uh, You know, even though I I don't know that, but I I know that. Um, When it comes to (laughs) copyright infringement, um, there's a few different camps in terms of different circuits and how exactly you prove it, but it's generally uh, it's generally pretty 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 close. You need access plus substantial similarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know when it comes to well, access is so, easy. So he claims it, in the story and at least reports that that um, I didn't know. You know he's like I didn't know. I you know I had no. I didn't copy it on purpose. This is just really one of those cases where two songs sound the same. Um, so 
you need to show access, you need to show substantial similarity. But if you can show something called striking similarity, where independent creation basically is impossible because they're so damn similar, you don't actually need to show access. Although you can show access by showing how damn famous Tom Petty is, and even if you, we can't show directly that you had his um, music sheet in your hands, we might be able to argue that we're so damn famous that like it's like a Rolling Stones song, you know, it's like a Beatles song. You everyone has access to it because of its damn. Or Stairway to Heaven. I mean, come on, don't sue over yeah, that. they could probably show that for Tom Petty, you know, but they don't have to because these songs are so close. That you, I, I, I would argue that they're strikingly similar, which is a step above and beyond substantial similarity. And so um, that's why I think this settled so quickly. And uh, good for Tom Petty, yeah. you know, for not uh, you know, doing the... Backing down? For not backing down. Not only not <laughs> backing down, but not doing the Rolling Stones, Bittertude Symphony, take everything. Because they're, now, they're, they're co-writers. Yeah. 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 And we've seen this with other songs before. I mean, it, this is why um, this is why uh, Chuck Berry has a co-writing credit on Surfing USA, for example. This is very common. It's a very similar situation there. You know, sometimes you listen to a song a few days before, and it's not even in your head uh, consciously, but it's it's subconscious inspiration. And you and know, uh, look at VH1 storytellers. You have these musicians coming on all the time, being like, "Yeah, I was really inspired by like you two when I wrote this song," and like they'll even come tell you. And there's actually there's actually a term for this. It's called cryptomnesia. You might, uh, it's when you think a memory or something you're creating is original when really it's a memory from something that you heard in the past. I, I, I buy into that. And cryptomnesia actually is pretty common. It's a pretty common plagiarism topic, but it usually stems to things like, like this song where you have a pretty simple chord progression and a, a general sound, but not necessarily like every single note of the song. You know, you have to be basically trying. <laughs> there's a point where you have to be trying, and there's a point where you can remember something more unconsciously. It doesn't make it necessarily less of an infringement under copyright law, but it does mean that maybe he's not a, a hopeless jerk. Yeah. You know I mean, it could be an, a genuine accident. And this happens a lot in music, and it happens sometimes, and you see it in the, like with novels and so forth, not so much the words in the novel, but the general plot arc sometimes um, can be the subject of this. Yeah, and so... Uh... I think this brings us to the last story of the day. Uh, do you want to tell us about the magical utopia of Norway yeah. and their? Uh... Yeah, the magical utopia of Norway with its beautiful blonde women featured in the photograph on Music World Music Worldwide. Or maybe that's just all of Scandinavia. Yeah, I think it's all of Scandinavia, honestly. But, but remember, Finland is not in Scandinavia technically. It's considered another uh, geographic body. I Did not that know recently. that. Um, because it's, it's on the mainland with Russia. It's not actually on that weird little peninsula. It looks like it's eating Denmark. Well, so listeners of the Copyright Tube Show, go. if you're going to leave with anything today, you should leave with Ge the knowledge this geography that Finland lessons. is not part of Scandinavia, uh, which to me is just Scandinavia. Nope. It is. It, it is. But um, Norway uh, has seen something of an extreme turnaround in the amount of pir music piracy it has seen. Uh, there's been an ongoing survey, as you might imagine, where they ask under Norwegians under the age of 30, so technically I'm disqualified from this survey, um, do you illegally download music? In 2009, 80% said yes, 20% said no. In 2014, 96% are now saying no, and only 4% are saying yes, and even those 4% saying they are not getting it as their primary source of music. It's something that maybe they're just doing once in a while, I suppose. Um, that is an extreme turnaround for you know. I look uh, at this and I and, and yeah, I think I think it's we're headed in this direction. But I also picture like you know a television camera and a microphone in front of a young uh, a Norwegian and be like, "Do you uh, pirate the music?" Uh, and then they're looking up, uh, "No," you know. <laughs> like I I just find it hard to believe. Um, yeah, I'd have no reason whatsoever for 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 for, for you know. Um, commenting on their uh, methods because it's, everything seems to be pretty pretty well put together and um, it's it just it's it's a good sign and, and I hope it's true now what's interesting though is this has not led to a significant growth of the music market value in the country it's led to a significant growth of the digital value because what's happening is um, these 
potential pirates are switching to legal streaming services, a la Spotify, etc. Yeah, and a lot of those are free. So the actual market value in 2009, according to this bar here on this bar graph on the site, was uh, 592 million, whatever the hell the currency is in Norway, NOC, Norwegian kroner. I think it's kroner, Norwegian kroner. Um, and in 2014, it was 601 million kroner. So that's a, an increase, but only you know about a percent, a little bit over a percentage point. That's pretty flat growth by any way you look at it. But then again, it hasn't shrunk either. So look at it that way. I think uh, slow, yeah. steady growth is 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 a, a godsend for the music industry. So uh, I think they'll take right it. now anywhere. Yeah. yeah, we'll take any growth we see anywhere. Um, so yeah, but it's still it's it's an interesting uh, study and. It it does seem even if maybe I I, I think maybe the uh, results are a little exaggerated maybe it's not as low as the survey says I do think there's been a significant turnaround because of these legal streaming alternatives now like I said the question remains is are these legal streaming alternatives significantly better than piracy that's a debate for a different day but at the end of the day those illegally downloading music seems to have suffered a very very sharp decline i shouldn't say suffered but has seen a very sharp yeah. decline you know there's an interesting comment uh on the uh on the article uh from Lori Lori Chilvers and she says that Spotify is success because it offers a user experience close to uh close to if not indistinguishable from piracy that is you can uh have all the music you want uh in your back pocket, you know. Um, so, on one end, you know, the music industry is, is in effect, celebrating the demise of piracy while essentially offering what piracy did in the first place, plus or minus some sleazy yeah. advertising, what she says. So, it just goes to show you, though, that even though piracy may be going away, you know, the little value there is in the streaming model is still going to probably take a long time before it really gets into the pockets of your middle class artists. Because well, you know, oh, you, you have uh, a business model that is everything all the time, and the money coming into that is 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 only as high as it uh, as as advertising revenue can pay, plus subscription fees, which isn't quite the same as uh, as what you can give in the old days. But the, you know, the reality is is that this is the only choice for the music industry. It's, it's this or or die. So so hopefully, as as more and more of the you know, free to listen or short, small subscription fee business goes towards legitimate uh, places like Spotify. As 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 Spotify eats up piracy because it's a better service, then more money will eventually end up in the hands of the middle class. And you know, I'm I'm a Spotify user. I have a family plan, a paid plan. Um, everyone here is on it. And we love it. Um, it's been great. And people ask me, well, what's so great about it? Well, it's basically like if you opened up iTunes and owned everything in iTunes. <laughs> you know, you've got all the things. And more or less all the things. And that's uh, great. I mean, you don't have to think about what you own, where is it, what CD is it on. Oh, did I put that one on the computer? I forgot to put that. I forgot to rip that one, you know. All that stuff, you, you don't think about that. And you don't think about, like, when I'm going for a run in the morning, I don't have to think, or all these songs on my phone, do I need to back them up? No, I'm just pulling it off the LTE network or, you know, saving the um, playlist to the phone before I go head off. That's what the benefit is to me, is that oh, convenience. Yeah. I, uh, I'm with you. I, know, like, I love the streaming service. You know, I love the available offline service for Spotify where you can just kind of, like, quasi-download them on your phone. You know, that's what I put on when I'm at the airport and I'm about to fly off on a plane. I, you know, I put on my relaxing music. I didn't have to, you know, remember to put it and transfer it. I just, you know, make sure I have my Spotify app going. And, uh, All right. Well, we'll see if this, ha if Spotify and the rise of music, because there just comes a point, though, where if you're pirating music, you're just a jerk. At this stage of the game, with, with free Spotify and, and Pandora and all this other stuff, if you're pirating music, you're just a jerk at this point. You're a jerk who's working harder to be a jerk. It is kind of harder to pirate you know? music these days uh, than to... Uh, it is. It really is. Obtain it legitimately. It really is. So if you're pirating music in the United States, you're a jerk in the story. Well, that's all the news I've got. You got any other thoughts on uh, this? You weeks? know, um, 
Not really. I don't think uh, there's uh, anything other than to announce that I will be going to live band karaoke tomorrow at Hill Country Barbecue in D.C. So if you want to, you know, come and hang out and have a beer with me, that's where I'll be. What are you? What are you? What are you? You got any plans on what you're singing? Any um, foreshadowing you I'm can provide? Sure, I'm actually I'm going to be meeting a, uh, a a cute intern there, so I've got a date. So it's definitely got to impress her. Uh, obviously, not my intern. That would be super uh, unprofessional. <laughs> happens that'd be, that'd be to be clunky. an intern in DC, um, um, and um, so it's got to be something that I could really rock. No, no, nothing too uh, outside of my range. You know, I once tried to do Dream On. That was kind of bad. Um, yeah, last time I. Don't do anything. Sorry, don't. Yeah, nothing by Stones or by Queen. Those are the two first rules. Um, I'm trying. Um, I think I might try something a little more contemporary. Um, maybe I'll do like a Bon Jovi song. I think it's important that no matter what I choose, the crowd. It has to be a crowd pleaser, because even if then I'm not that good at it, if everyone kind of loves it, they can help me out. Well, you could always sing Red Solo Cup. <laughs> That seems all. <laughs> uh, I'm not really a country guy, but <laughs> no, no, okay, uh, no, okay. Um, well, I, I, we, have, I have evidence that you were able to do Foo Fighters quite well, so there's evidence of that on YouTube. So you could always pick that up. I, uh, I, I know what I'm going to get it recorded, and and I'll uh, stay tuned, kids. Next week, if you come and listen to us again, you'll get my there's like 45 yes. iPhone yes. recorded yeah. seconds of me at live band karaoke. And we will be getting back on our weekly schedule post-haste. Well, uh, on that note, everyone, thank you very much for joining us. My name is Jonathan Bailey from the site Plagiarism Today, which can be found at plagiarismtoday.com. And I'm username Plagiarism Today on all the things, Facebook, Twitter, etc., etc., ad infinitum. And my name is Evan Sherris, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Evan Sherris. And um, we'll see you. All right, well, thank you very much, and like I said, we will see you guys next week. We would like to give a very special thank you to Pit X for contributing the Copyright 2.0 show theme song entitled Me Boo. It is available under the Creative Commons by Attribution License and can be found at ccmixter.org by searching for the word Me Boo. Thank you very much, Pit X. Yeah.